0: Now that I'm so happy to have you here with me today, I'm gonna start by one of your most popular tweets. Uh, you dropped this uh, a while ago, and that we did tweet, your, sorry, you described your path as a developer. You were a high school dropout at 17. You dropped out of college at 19. You started coding at 29, and then you got fired from your first job at 30. I really like how honest you are in all of this. Uh, you landed your first 60K job at 33. You uh, were told 80K was too high when you were 34. Uh, you landed a 120K consulting contract at 36. Then you landed your 400K as an independent consultant at 37. And lastly, you were doing cool shit, as you say, at one of the fangs at 39. That's amazing. And that tweet, I'm sure, inspired so many people. What can you tell me about it?
1: Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Uh, Definitely was surprised to see how many people were reaching out and really relating to that tweet or inspired by that. It's very, very, um, I would say, surprising to me to see how many people that are also self-taught that reached out that either were already successful or were hoping to kind of reach some success that I spoke with for, I don't know, I mean, it's been years now, but I still have people that kind of reach out about that. So it's been pretty cool to kind of meet a lot of people who opened up about their own uh, journey as a developer. A lot of people were just thinking that even at the age of 30, that they were too old and to me in 10 years later, you know, I still feel like you can start even in your forties or fifties, to be quite honest, and you're still young enough to kind of get going. So to hear people that are in their twenties, say stuff like that, it's kind of, it's wild to, to think. But I think when I was even younger myself, I often felt older than I actually was. So like, maybe that's that's what some of those folks are feeling.
0: I think what's happening, and I've debated this uh, quite a few times, what happens is that the, the noisy people in the field are often in their twenties. So the people on social networks, you know, the people who have time for social media uh, who are more verbose and vocal are uh, in the early ages. And the people who are a bit more mature, older, senior devs maybe who have spent like decades in the industry are a bit quieter so you don't hear often from them and we assume that this field is dominated by you know the younger folks and that everybody else has transitioned to management i think this is the phenomenon we're seeing uh, and, and that's the, that's the reason why people think that when you're 30 oh you're too old for development which is not the case at all the best work you do is when you're a bit more mature in this field
1: yeah that could definitely be the case and I've had opportunities to to kind of get into that management type of style um day to day as I got older but and I and I have done management but the thing that I enjoyed the most is still just being an individual contributor coding and and stuff like that
0: Absolutely. That's that's where the fun is. I I enjoy it myself. I've done consulting, I've done management, and then I came back to just being a regular software engineer. I don't want any of the fancy titles. Just give me give me a keyboard, give me a challenge. I just want to solve problems all day long every day. All right. Now that how do you identify? Like, are you an entrepreneur? Are you a software engineer? Like, what are you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do definitely identify in a lot of different areas. I am a full time engineer for. 11 years now, I would say. But my role has transitioned from front end to mobile to cloud to, you know, now I'm in the blockchain space and I've built a couple of AI apps and one AI company. And then I've transitioned from engineering to developer relations to management of developer relations at AWS back to individual contributing. So I've kind of gone all over the place. I would just, I would just identify myself as a developer that loves to hack on things and experiment and do a little bit of entrepreneurial stuff. But I think the main thing I enjoy doing is teaching and education, kind of uh, trying to essentially recreate stories like my, my own maybe because of how thankful and grateful I still am for what happened in my life. And it feels like Um, I just want everyone in the world to experience the same thing. So like education for me is, is the path to kind of maybe help uh, achieve that. And for certain people, maybe.
0: Absolutely. I I totally get it. I'm a dropout myself from university. And the thing is when, when we're dropouts, we sort of, at least in my experience, I, I always have to prove myself over and over (laughs) and over again, you know, yeah, Uh, it's like. Wherever you go, you just have to demonstrate your abilities uh, one more time, you know. It never ends, no matter what you do, no matter what you build. Um, And also, there's some... Sometimes I felt like during the period when I was at university that people looked down on you just because maybe you you were on the trajectory to drop out for whatever reason. I dropped out for financial reasons, which had nothing to do with my academic performance. But still, maybe it's my internal imposter syndrome. And I feel like I want to... I, I, what I'm trying to say is I relate to what you're saying in terms of teaching, because I want to tell everybody else not to have these feelings, you know, not to feel ashamed by it, to just keep on uh, learning, educating yourself, be curious, and you can do it.
1: Yeah, totally. I identify a lot with the imposter syndrome, never feels to completely go away.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. It's difficult because... Uh, Especially when you're working around and you've worked at at Amazon, I believe, right? Um, So when you're working next to a lot of smart people, uh, the imposter syndrome kicks in hard. And then all of these insecurities just keep on chasing you, I guess.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. And it definitely is kind of one of those things that comes and goes. But when you first maybe start learning how to code and you have that first aha moment, you get very, very uh excited and motivated and then things come that demotivate you um for different reasons you know you might meet someone who is a hundred times better than you in your eyes uh at something when you thought you were really good and and relative to like the average person you're still way better but to that person you feel like inadequate and then that's that's kind of often when that imposter syndrome kicks in uh, Absolutely. for me
0: correct and and also because sometimes we evaluate people based on one dimension so we pick the dimension we think we are the worst at and then we start comparing ourselves to that other person but we also neglect all of the other dimensions of that other individual so we might be better than that individual in like 10 other things but, but that doesn't matter to our brains they're just so fixated on that one single thing that uh, you know they are better better than us at which is uh, quite fascinating how the brain works sometimes.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's just uh, your brain basically kind of messing with you.
0: 100%. All right, let's talk about blockchain. You are um, like a big proponent of the blockchain Web 3.0. You've been riding the wave for quite a while now. You've been building a lot of awesome things. I know nothing about the blockchain. Uh, so in the sense that technically, you know, it, it was never an area that... Uh, I got interested in Bitcoin back in the early days. So I I remember I always tell the story and probably everybody tells a similar story. Like in 2012, 2013, Bitcoin price was like six cents uh, per per Bitcoin or something. My colleague and I, were talking, what is this awesome thing coming on? We were very curious about it technically. We read the, the white papers. I personally didn't understand anything back then about it and how it works. You know and then it just blew up in popularity and what's more interesting than the cryptocurrency application of the blockchain is, is all of the other stuff which i think some of some of it is what you're working on so tell yes. me in your own words what are you working on in that space what's keeping you motivated and curious uh, over there
1: yeah there's there's so much to to kind of talk about here both good and bad in terms of my experience and the things that I like and the things that I don't like. There's, there's quite a bit we could go into. I'll call out two things that maybe recently happened that I thought were interesting. Um, I just got back from Buenos Aires, Argentina a couple of days ago, and we were down there at a conference. We sponsor, we were giving talks and um, helping hackers build stuff. One of the things that happened uh, was they're having essentially some political, like, I wouldn't say unrest, but uh, changing from you know one leader to another leader, that's kind of kind of off the rails a little bit to some people. But what ended up happening because of this a little bit of unrest is that their currency inflated around 30% within two days. So like when we see inflation happening in the United States, we get really, really, uh, you know, we're like, oh, 10% in one year, which is really high for us. But yeah. we don't realize that there are a lot of people in countries where they see inflation of like 100% or 200% or even thousands of a percent in one year. Um, Mm -hmm. And what what that does is a lot of, there's a lot of negative things that happen from that. It disrupts the entire economy, obviously, but governments often intervene and you can't withdraw your money. Uh, You can't do anything with your money because the government won't allow you to do it. Banks shut down. Correct. Um, Lebanon, where I am from, uh, the Middle East, Ah, uh, Palestine, But if you want to send uh, payments to someone uh, in the Middle East or receive payments, sometimes banks will kind of intervene. Um, and I think that blockchain technologies, one really, really, uh, I would say powerful use case, is dealing with these negative financial situations. In the terms of inflation, there are stable coins where people can uh, have money. That is pegged to a more stable currency like the US dollar. And they can also have uh, no restrictions on how they can use their money. So if you get paid in um, Argentina today, you can only withdraw $100 uh, US equivalent uh, around that much per day. Mm-hmm. But let's say that you want to go buy something in another country or you want to do something with that money, you literally can't do that. Uh, with cryptocurrency, no one can stop you from doing anything. So if you if you have uh, earned money in some way, um, a lot of remote workers, for example, a lot of the companies and teams that we work with are paying in stable coins. You have no restrictions on what you can do with that. So it's kind of empowering for people that live in places that are not um, as privileged, I guess, as like okay. Europe and the United States and things like that. Let's so debate this. Uh,
0: yes. Sorry to interrupt. Let's debate this a little bit because I come from Lebanon. I know this story all too well. Uh, Lebanon has had a probably similar trajectory to what's happening in Venezuela. I think Egypt is going on that path as well. Uh, For many reasons, central banks, uh, you know, idiocy is one of them. Um, The currency in Lebanon got destroyed. Let's put it that way. Um, uh, 1,500 Lebanese pounds were worth $1. Now each 100,000 Lebanese lira are worth $1 approximately. Um, Mm. This has created massive turbulence in the country. People lost all of their savings because all of their money was in the banks and the banks uh, started enforcing capital control measures, not allowing people to withdraw their money and and all of that stuff. So I understand this all too well. What I don't understand yet fully is why is cryptocurrency and stable coins the solution for this? How can a non-digitized population, for example, regular people like my mother, my sisters, you know, non-techies, how can they start using this? Why is it better than any other government issued currency? Why is it global? And why does the blockchain need to be, why does it, you know, why is that the only solution?
1: Well, I think that in terms of the real world uh, use cases, like how can you actually earn in in stable coins? And how how can you actually go buy milk and use it in your day-to-day I think that's kind of where we're trying to to get. And and if you go again to some of these places in uh, Latin America, for example, Argentina uh, specifically is probably the country in all of Latin America or even all the Americas that has the most adoption. You're starting to see this happen. So for instance, the tattoo that I'm wearing here, I paid for in cryptocurrency um, because I couldn't withdraw. A lot of the people that are there are familiar with with crypto and they accept it for bartering goods and services, things like that. So I think that um, that is helpful. So it, it, uh, that if you can actually go and spend that and therefore we need more adoption for retailers and merchants and things like that. And I think that um, it's it, it comes as a necessity. Like in the United States, it wouldn't make a ton of sense for everyone to start uh, accepting like stablecoin payments or something like that for them to go out of their way to maybe to, to make that happen. But in other parts of the world, like, like down there, it actually does make sense because they're able to make more money. People are able to spend more money. It just enables more commerce, um, with a digital economy and a remote first economy, more and more jobs being online, more and more people doing, uh, knowledge work. There's the opportunity to to pay people in this way. If you're working for an international company, uh, if you, if you, choose to, and if they enable that. So a lot of the, uh, actually all of the grant payments, for example, that we deal with, we pay people in stable coins, or no matter where they are in the world, we don't need to know what bank account, their bank account number, their routing number. We don't have to KYC them. We don't have to go through all these hoops. We can just get their address, their wall address and send money. No one's stopping us from sending it. No one's preventing them from getting it and using it. So it's very empowering for someone to say, oh, Linz and Ave, they have um, a treasury of this much money per year. They're giving grants. I need to make some money. I know how to code. I'm going to go build something and I'm going to get paid and I'm going to get paid in these stable coins and, and I can go use that okay. hopefully in my day to day, my day to day life.
0: Isn't this lack of regulation and lack of oversight exactly what created sort of the downfall of cryptocurrencies because it facilitated a lot of the corruption, the theft, and all of that nasty stuff that, that came about, right, and and I think the lack of regulation is not necessarily because, so, sorry, let me put it in another way. I think the existence of regulation did not come because uh, governments wanted to do it out of spite. They did it because gradually, people started exploiting the existing systems, be it with the fiat, regular fiat currencies, with the with the existing rules and regula- uh, laws, And people were getting hurt, so, you know, these restrictions were imposed gradually to prevent malicious actors from exploiting the rest of the, you know, population. But with crypto now, it seems that we just took took a shortcut and and we went around, you know, a lot of this progress that we have done in terms of, um, you know, controlling the malicious actors in our society. So is this a good thing or is it a bad thing? How it's a good and a
1: bad it? thing. I mean, it's definitely a bad thing when there are hacks and there are scammers and people get taken advantage of and people lose their money and uh, all these negative things that happen. Um, so there are empowering things, but there are also bad things. If you look at the Internet, um, if, if we were in, in 1990 or something like that and someone was like, I'm going to create this technology it will allow human trafficking, it will allow drug trafficking, it will allow child pornography, all of these things way easier. Like, they will just be able to click a button and do any of these illegal things. Should we build this? And most of the people, if they were positioned in that way, would probably say, hell no, like, we we don't want that. That sounds absolutely terrible. But when you also look at the benefits that it brings, uh, instant communication, um, global work, Uh, I mean, obviously, the There are countless things that the internet is good for. So it's kind of like a balance. And and I think that you have to take the good with the bad while always trying to improve the bad. Um, I think with the mistakes that happen, lessons learned, um, things like that, that things will and are continuing to get better. Um, There are also uh, institutions in crypto in the blockchain space that have been around through all of this that have actually held their own and proven to be trustworthy. And I think that reputation is going to play more and more of a factor and also long-term like longevity is going to play more and more of a factor in how people interact with these different protocols and these different tools and these different um, currencies. Then maybe people that were just coming in for pure speculation a year or two ago. I don't think the most interesting thing about crypto is anything to do with the coins that go up and down in value. The things that interest me the most are stable coins and the infrastructure that people are building out, interesting software applications that are not uh, finance, financially like related at all actually, are, okay. are the two things that actually interest me the most. I wanna talk so.
0: about the second the second aspect of, of the blockchain, which is uh, the other non-cryptocurrency applications. But first let's talk a little bit about stable coins because I wanna understand these a little bit more Uh, Why are these different than any other government currency that is pegged against the dollar, for example, right? The Lebanese lira, Mm -hmm. for example, was was pegged against the dollar for about, I don't know, 30 years. It was the most catastrophic decision that could have ever been made by a central bank to a market as, as or an economy as small as the Lebanese economy, because the cost of pegging the you know, Lebanese Lira against the dollar was just like too expensive. You have to retain especially for a country that doesn't export anything and imports 80% of, of its goods. And obviously cryptos are not, we're not gonna debate it on, on a government level, but how does this relationship between stable coins and, and the US dollar, for example, work?
1: Yeah, I think that there are, um... First, going back to the Lebanese stable coin uh, or the Lebanese uh, (laughs) currency being pegged to the US dollar, it obviously was not pegged to the dollar, right? It was theoretically going to be pegged to the dollar, but that didn't work out. I think that the (laughs) the reason that may not have worked out is that there was not transparency in how they were actually going to make this happen and how it was going to actually play out. It was probably a thing that someone passed into law that. Everyone was like, oh, that sounds awesome. Let's like do that. And but 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 in reality, there was no real way to kind of make that happen in a sustainable way. With stable coins, most, if not all, of the most widely used stable coins code is programmed for everyone to to review and there's different ways that this is accomplished. The most stable way, in my opinion, that uh, a lot of people also agree with this is this idea of over collateralization, meaning that you have assets that are backing the value of that currency that are valued more than the currency that is being issued itself. Um, hmm. So there's a company called Circle that issues USDC, and USDC is one of the most widely used uh, stable coins. In, in the world and they are like an over collateralized stable coin. So in order to like mint or have this coin available to you or, or for it to come into existence, you have to provide some other type of collateral. And uh, I think it's 150% of, of the value of that coin itself um, for, for, for that to come into existence. Um, the, the issuers of the stable coins make money off of the interest that it's earned. So with the uh in the last year with interest rates going up, Circle has minted billions of dollars just by maintaining the USDC stablecoin uh, peg and you know being in charge of of everything else that they do. I don't really know exactly what they do, but with with the interest rates going up, they've actually been doing really well and the USDC stablecoin has been globally used for a lot of really great things. And I, I use it all the time, actually. Um, we, again, we pay our, uh, grantees that, that earn, uh, or do work through our, um, grant process in uscc I often send and receive money to my friends or to people that I work with in uscc I don't have to, again, ask them any information about like any of the banking stuff. I just sent a wire to Mexico city today for like $120, And it took us like two hours of back and forth to figure out the bank codes that were correct and the bank name and location and the routing numbers uh, that they have. It's not really a routing number it's something else, but but it was just so like much of a pain in the ass um, compared to like what I'm used to. So I think like it not only provides um, a value proposition in general, but it also is just a lot simpler and, and less pain in the ass. But again, I think it's just also another option. I think, like, not everyone is going to want to use this stuff, and I think that's completely okay. I think if you're doing business in the United States and in Europe you, and you're not an international person or you don't have to worry about any of these things, you live in, like, uh, a place that, that doesn't have to deal with any of these in- uncertainties, you know, maybe it's not uh, necessarily perfect for you. But let's say you open a company and you want to hire someone in Nigeria, for example, or you want to hire someone somewhere else, and you want to just have a really simple way to, to pay them, well, guess what, you could do that, and uh, it only takes a couple of seconds, so. But
0: I want to challenge this a little bit further, and this is the last, last of, of, of this uh, conversation, because I want to switch to the more, you know, interesting things that are less controversial. Um, these, these transferring money across borders is difficult for its main reason, uh, which is to prevent tax evasion, money laundering, and all of these bad things. Like, let's say I work in the Netherlands, for example, right? and I make an income here, I pay income tax directly because I have no control over my income before I get my, it's automatically deducted. But there is also a capital, not a capital gains tax, there's a wealth tax. So let's say I make some savings and then I convert all of those to a stable coin and then I ship them out of the country to someone else and nobody can trace that back to me, for example. right? That's tax evasion. A form or another right so these coins will facilitate a lot of these activities right and they are simpler right now because the Dutch government for example did not decide to crack down on it for and then when they do it's gonna be pretty much the same as uh, doing a transaction via a bank however it's gonna be even worse because we don't even know who's gonna control this it's just a distributed network Uh, that anybody can tap into and can create a transaction on the blockchain and just make it pass through, right? So how do you foresee a world where governments decide to crack down on cryptocurrencies and start regulating them just like they do with banks, for example?
1: Well, there's a method of payment that's been around for like a long time that is very, very good for drug dealing, sex trafficking, tax evasion. Even Pablo Escobar I think had $60 billion of these things. It's called cash. <laughs> it's completely uh, discreet. No one can know that you have it True. if you find a way to hide it, but people still use it for good and bad things. I think it's it's basically a good analogy because yes, people will use it for, uh, for, for things like this, but the United States probably doesn't have to worry that much about uh, tax evasion. Um, they've hired a new 80,000, uh, IRS officers. I think they said in the last year or so, um, they have crypto divisions. It's very hard to kind of off ramp large amounts of crypto. Like you can, you can send money to each other, but like, it's almost just like cash. Like if you want to actually take a billion dollars in cash and use it, it's going to need to go through some bank or somewhere that will probably end up like coming on the radar of the IRS um for microtransactions or for smaller transactions like drug dealing and things like that yeah it might it might facilitate that more but i think that's not anything new but it is again empowering for people that literally um i mean this is not a story that i'm making up but I, it's it's one of the most interesting things that i'd seen is someone that literally had like a life or death situation in terms of them being able to afford medical care and they raised some money doing some uh, something with crypto about two years ago. And they were able to to pay for that. And if this didn't exist, then that wouldn't have happened. So I think you have to kind of like uh, understand, yes, it's not all good. And anyone that tries to tell you, oh, we're going to solve all of this stuff, is probably going to, is definitely lying to you. <laughs> and, and there's going to be negative things for sure. But I think you have to kind of realize that this is kind of how technology has always worked, you know? Um, the internet, again, is a good analogy and cash in terms of like comparing it to this is also another analogy.
0: Got it. All right. Besides crypto. But good what's... points. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Invalid, <laughs> for sure.
0: All right. So besides this aspect, uh, what is exciting you about the blockchain tech itself? What are you working on besides this? Uh, I see something about the Lens, Lens protocol. Uh, there's also a company, Ave, I think. Uh, can you tell me more about that?
1: Yeah, so when I first got into this space, one of the things that was a theoretical idea that seemed really exciting and interesting to me was kind of using uh, this permissionless, decentralized, open infrastructure to build software applications. And when I like really, really dug into it, the ideas were really, really interesting, but there wasn't a lot of real use cases. It was very early on. It still kind of is uh, in terms of us getting to parity with, what you see with AWS cloud and how performant these types of web services are. Um, but when I kind of started diving into all this stuff, it, it, there just seems to be so much possibility. But after working in the space for about a year, I realized how far we we still needed to go to make any of this stuff really a reality. And it really was kind of um. A, and I wouldn't say like a depressing moment to kind of have, okay, I'm gonna switch my career. I'm gonna dive into all this stuff to come to this reality like, wow, most of this stuff is nowhere near ready to actually build this stuff. Um, but it's also really empowering to say, okay, we're not there yet, but maybe I can be a part of this to help us get there. This is gonna be a long term play. I'm gonna be here building, um, but it's gonna be something that we can work towards. Um, there was a lot of like gambling. There's a lot of trading type of stuff, like just isn't really interesting to me or something I would want to work on. So I kind of spent the next three to six months just keeping my eye out for who is actually building in this space, trying to find a project or a team to kind of work with that was on this, um, you know, on this path to maybe building something that the average person would want to use. And the company that I, and the team that I ended up joining about a year ago is what you mentioned. It's it's Ave. And they also have a protocol called Lens Protocol. The things that we're working on are a stable coin, which was launched a few months ago called Go GHO. We've launched Lens Protocol, which is a social infrastructure, kind of like how Auth0 is for authentication identity. Uh, Lens is for building social applications. And then uh, Ave is also a DeFi protocol. So you can do lending and borrowing and stuff like that. So it kind of combines all of the things that I'm interested in. And um, I feel like we're also seeing a shift in the traditional um, social founders moving in a similar direction that we're building, which is very validating, I think. So we're building a, what you could call a blockchain or an on-chain or a decentralized like web. Uh, oh, it's not really a web, but a decentralized social protocol for people to build social applications on top of it, essentially, is what Lens is. But what they you understand. Also, uh, Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Help me understand
0: the value proposition of Lens. I'm curious about that. So um, I understand the problem of identity. You have people who can come in on, I don't know, Twitter, now known as X, Facebook, whatever. They can create an account, call themselves, whatever. Nobody can verify who they are or whether they're authentically that person or another, right? Um, So does Lens, for example, help facilitate this identity verification step? Uh, and for, for someone who can come in and create a profile to say, this is the person who they claim they are, or it's something else entirely.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's not, I wouldn't say identity is the central focus. Um, but, but I will take a step back to kind of give an analogy so people can understand maybe, uh, where, where I'm coming from. If you look at what has happened with who are like the two, what are like the two biggest social founders that have ever existed and not counting tiktok maybe i guess you could say who <laughs> would those know. people be maybe? facebook mark and who else uh
0: maybe jack with twitter
1: yeah jack with twitter there you go so the two biggest social founders are, are mark zuckerberg uh, and jack who founded twitter and then you could also probably say tiktok um, right Absolutely. but tiktok is um newer i would say um jack has has moved into a similar space as what Lens is doing. He's now regretting having built Twitter that way he built it after working on it for X number of years. He wants to make it a, de- he wants to build like a decentralized social protocol or decentralized social network. He's used all of those terms. So what he did next was pivoted to um, something called blue sky. Right. And then now he's actually pivoted again and put his weight behind something called Noster, which is a more decentralized version of Blue Sky. So one of the biggest social founders kind of moving in this this direction. Um, Adam Masseri is the head of Instagram, and he's also the head of a new social network called Threads that you probably have heard of if you've mm-hmm. watched yeah. uh, what's going on on Twitter. Absolutely. Adam Masseri gave a, a TED Talk in about a year ago, and it's called a creator-led internet built on blockchain. And this was given by the person that is the head of Instagram and and, uh, Threads about a year ago. And then one of his first posts on Threads from Adam Aseri after it launched was talking about them pivoting ultimately to a decentralized protocol as well, or decentralized network. He said, we're committed to building support for ActivityPub the protocol behind Mastodon into this app. We won't be able to finish it, blah, 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 because it's very uh, complicated building a decentralized network, but it's coming. And then what he said is, is interesting, very interesting to me. <laughs> uh, if you're wondering why this matters, here's a reason. You may one day end up leaving threads or hopefully not being deplatformed. If that ever happens, you should be able to take your audience with you to another server. Being open can enable that. So I think he explained some of the value proposition about building these types of networks in an open and uh, permissionless manner. A couple of the value propositions have to do with users, but for us, a lot of it actually has to do with developers and enabling them to build out social experiences and experiment and things like that. So I didn't really answer your question exactly because I have a lot to say, but. I did think that um, giving the context of the two biggest social founders kind of moving in the same direction gives at least a little bit of validation for people listening that um, would might not take these types these sorts of things seriously uh, We're building in a different way than activity pub um, Noster is building in a different way than all of us together so we're all kind of taking our own uh, approaches to this
0: Got it okay so I think this gives me a little bit more of the motivation behind federated networks. So that use case you mentioned, like I came in, I built an audience on one of these platforms for one reason or another, I need to move to something else or I get kicked out. I wanna bring my, you know, the people I, the audience I built with me, I get that how is this facilitated so like basically the the social connections are done on the layer underneath the social networks themselves and then the social apps can become just the you know sort of the interaction point with the protocol and then the protocol is like underneath all of the different social social applications that exist out there is that how how it works
1: essentially like you have this blockchain like protocol and i'm saying blockchain like because it's not all a blockchain Mm -hmm. but a lot of the things that it enables have some of the same value propositions that a blockchain offers but we do it a lot less expensive because at scale you obviously cannot post every single interaction absolutely you can't say like if i like a tweet or if i comment on something or if i post a picture like imagine uh a 50 million people, uh, doing that all at once. It was just not scale. So we have built uh, an infrastructure that has uses the blockchain for certain things like financialized things, but for most posts, it uses, uh, other decentralized infrastructure that still maintains this, uh, I would say attachment to the user's identity. It's public and it's open and it is at the core of the, the protocol actually censorship resistant and immutable. So. That way, if you want to say, uh, have built out your own application on Lens, the, the, the application developers are choosing the APIs that they wanna use and the APIs themselves are kind of doing the content moderation and the filtering and things like that. So um, you kind of have the protocol at the base level, you have the APIs that are serving up user experiences to the client developers. And the client developers are just building out web and mobile apps
0: so you mentioned the decentralized infrastructure i want to understand a little bit who are the custodians and owners of that uh you know uh distributed um layer is it is it the owners of the lens protocol themselves or is it also distributed across the participants who own you know parts of that chain let's say or whatever you want to call it uh, of, of that particular layer
1: so the owner of the smart contracts in terms of the upgradability of the contracts themselves right now is our team. And what we ultimately would like to do would be to make this more of like a almost like a DAO type of mechanism where things change and they're updated based on the decisions of of a, a group of people. But typically what you see happening in these sorts of situations when you're trying to build out a uh something that is compelling at scale is you kind of start more centralized and you kind of move to being more decentralized in terms of like basically everything. But uh, the underlying protocol itself is completely permissionless. Like no one tells anyone if they can post or not. Anyone can create a post. Uh, You can decide to use our APIs or you can write directly to the smart contracts. So there is no control at all there. Uh, What is controlled at the moment. It's kind of the upgradability of the contracts as we continue to improve the protocol. And the the decision-making there is still uh, centralized to basically our team.
0: Awesome. So what's the level of maturity of something like this? Uh, is it already in the market? Do you already have developers building on top of your protocol? Where are you in that journey?
1: It's definitely very bleeding edge. So, I mean, I'm not going to lie. We We're still very, very young in terms of I don't think anyone's ever built anything like this that, that we're, we've we built. People have obviously taken a shot at different types of social networks that would be considered decentralized, but um, we're taking a very unique approach, I think. That being said, we are kind of getting to the point in the next two to three months uh, where we are going to take this and enable a permissionless uh, access model. I, I think you would, you would say it would be the best uh, way to kind of describe it. Uh, it's still in closed beta right now. Uh, the the reason that it's been in closed beta, first of all, we had massive scaling issues early on and we rewrote and redeployed our infrastructure a few months ago because everything in the past was on chain. So like every interaction was using the Polygon network and therefore we often were taking up large percentage of, of the entire shared network. Um, when you look at a blockchain, even the most scalable blockchain that exists today regardless of what anyone might tell you it's probably close to a few hundred transactions per second when in terms of individual transactions solana is you know claims to be a few thousand and a single transactional solana actually produces uh multiple additional transactions uh, that don't relate to the actual action being taken so those numbers are kind of a little bit uh, inflated or bloated in my opinion but let's say for uh just for the sake of Being generous, let's say that there's a blockchain that can do 10,000 transactions per second, right? Well, that 10,000 transactions is actually shared between every single application in the whole world that's using it and all of their users. People are moving to more of like a modular approach where people are kind of thinking about this idea of an application-specific chain where you have a single blockchain for a specific app. Um, We've taken a different approach. We've decided to not use a blockchain to store our content on because we don't care about the double spin problem that blockchains were built to prevent. Um, because if, if I create a post and my friend creates a post across the world and we both post at the exact same moment, it doesn't really matter if I know that his content is there and he knows that my content is there for that transaction to succeed. So the limitation that a traditional blockchain puts, is massive compared to a blockchain-like structure that only is focused on data storage, but that still gives the other capabilities that are really, really valuable, again, like immutability and things like that. So we've kind of taken that approach and our, our infrastructure now scales to something around 40,000 transactions per second that we've tested, which is more, a lot more than we need. So by doing that update we're now ready to kind of move on to the next phase which is just essentially permissionless onboarding getting out of closed beta but the big problem the big challenge was solving that scalability solution and um all the credit goes to our engineering team they've done just an amazing job and yeah we're here now last
0: question about this there was a big blockchain crypto bubble that burst a while ago how do you feel about the environment right now? Uh, in the sense that there are a lot of people who got uh, less excited about the technology. There are a lot of people who said, I told you so, uh, you know, uh, when when things started falling apart. Um, are we in a, in a, in a winter Are we in a blockchain crypto winter? Uh, or is it more going towards the plateau of stability and actual growth and uh, maturity?
1: Yeah there was a huge bubble hype cycle that happened in 2021 leading into 2022 and it definitely has a lot of uh, momentum and a lot of uh, excitement and a lot of just people even are starting to lead the industry so um i think that maybe a lot of people were in it and didn't really understand the technology enough like even myself when i first joined about how immature it was and Once you realize, oh, this is going to be some work and it's going to be a lot of experimentation and uh, there's a lot more interesting stuff that you might find that isn't blockchain related and they're going to go work on that. I think that's kind of what you're seeing. Um, Too much money came in. A lot of people and and, uh, teams got funded for stuff that is never going to work, to be quite honest, or that is just a scam, or they're just going to be sitting on, you know, building nothing in my opinion for a few years that is just gonna be uh just wasting all their investors' money. But there's also a lot of really interesting stuff happening if you kind of really dig deep. When I say a lot, I would say the minority of things that are happening are interesting <laughs> and like real, really valuable. But they are out there. And um it's really it's really uh up to I would say the person to kind of decide if they find this stuff interesting or not once all of the hype goes away, you know? So um I think that people might say, okay, I'm working in blockchain and that's all I'm going to do. I'm like a maximalist or something like that. But I think the more the more I would say proper approach is just still be building everything. Like y- you can combine uh, this type of technology with all of the traditional technology we've had in the past to build out cool new experiences. You can dabble with AI with all this stuff. You can do all types of stuff. So you don't have to be kind of a maximalist only focused on one thing, I think that it makes more sense to combine these things, use this technology where it is best suited, use other technology where it's best suited, combine, create uh, new, cool, interesting applications. Um, there was like this new app that was built that, that launched a few weeks ago that became really, really hyped. Uh, and this was happening in the last week or two called FriendTech. And it's kind of like another uh, approach to the social application. But you're basically like uh, but it is a very financialized application which to me is not my favorite thing but it, it's it's kind of cool because a lot of people use it but you can like buy and sell shares in your friends so like you join the network and i buy a share in you because i think oh you're gonna be like really really <laughs> famous one day or something i don't know That's um interesting. but every time someone buys a share of you you get a percentage of that transaction so like just by me signing up and like buying their shares And what ends up happening if you buy a share of someone, you get to have a private chat with them. So it kind of is really good for that because I think a lot of uh, sex workers actually have challenges in terms of (laughs) payment providers because like a lot of credit card companies, a lot of banks like don't allow that type of stuff. But with crypto, no one can tell them no. So it's a good use case for for those sorts of things. Um, It's really fun app to kind of play around with. But what they've done is like combined uh, blockchain with a progressive web app and just regular databases. So like the messaging all happens in a regular database, but the on-chain stuff has to do with buying and selling shares. So I think stuff like that is kind of like, you know, kind of interesting to see. Definitely. Not revolutionary, but definitely fun. (laughs) Look, I mean,
0: I always said to everybody who I talk to that there is a need for internet, for an internet currency. And I think this whole Web 3.0 debate is just a, a simple misunderstanding of two groups that are not able to communicate together. So I think we all acknowledge that there needs to be some form of uh, transactionality that is faster, more efficient, allows microtransactions, uh, very more modern than what it is today with a little bit less oversight from governments and whatnot.
1: There's a need for that. That's a good uh, way to to state it. I mean, we have native protocols built in for HTTP, for uh, SSL, exactly, for SSH, and all of these different things. Uh, you could think of yeah, maybe crypto as like an internet native payment system. I can exactly. just click a button and, and send to anywhere in the world, no gatekeepers and things like that. And like you mentioned, that's a good and a bad thing. It's a great thing for sex workers. Again, like we just <laughs> mentioned, that might not be able to, to get paid if they're doing something that uh, is high risk for people that might charge back. Like, I think that that's one of the big things that, that they get is like charge back and stuff. Um, it might be a, a great thing if you are living in Argentina and working uh, in a software company and you're able to make a hundred thousand a year and the next year it's still a hundred thousand. Um, it's a really bad thing. if You're wanting to fund uh, drug trafficking or terrorism or something like that. And you're able to, to more easily do that. So, yeah, so uh, anyone that tries to say it's all good or it's all bad is probably not worth listening to. No, ab- uh, It's all nuance like, in gray, like a gray area.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I just think my vision for it is more on the level of, again, we need something internet native. I'm not sure that the blockchain is that solution, but I think the blockchain will help create the protocols necessary for us to create that solution probably sometime 100%. in future. 100%. That's that's hundred percent.
1: If it's a proof of concept and it enables that, then I think I think it's been a success.
0: (laughs) Brilliant. All right, awesome. Let's switch gears a little bit. And when we were preparing for this episode, uh, you mentioned that you're a person who also likes to ride the waves, chase the trends, because obviously you've you know done a lot of different things. You've uh, ventured into a lot in a lot of different areas. Uh, You probably also launched and sold a small AI startup not so long ago. Um, tell me what's your philosophy about that? Because one of the biggest advice we give to junior software engineers is not to chase the technology trends and to focus a little bit more on picking up the fundamental skills.
1: Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. So what's um, your I think there's, there's both. I think when you first get started, you need to build a foundation that will carry you along no matter what you do. And I think once you have that foundation, then you are privileged enough to then experiment a lot more. I think it's more about like the more senior you are, the more time that you can allocate yourself to experiment. And that is a really, really powerful thing because some of these experiments will work. <laughs> you know, sometimes you will actually be playing with the hot new thing and it will take off, you know? So, um, but it's more of a gamble, you know? It's it's like, if my kid wanted to go uh, to but go be a professional YouTuber and he was going to quit school in like the eighth grade to, to uh, follow that. I would probably say, okay, a better approach would be yes, follow that dream, but also go to school and get a, a degree or, or, or something just in case that doesn't work out. And that way you're not pulling all your eggs in one basket. Right. So like, therefore you're not really taking as much of a risk. So AI is, is a great example of that. You know, we have these new LLM APIs. They're wonderful. They do all kinds of crazy stuff. So I built like a project over literally the course of a weekend launched it 60,000, uh, active users, uh, a a day for over a week straight ended up, um, becoming a really compelling app for buyers because you know, everyone wants users. It became very expensive for me to maintain. So I sold it within like two (laughs) weeks because my, my infrastructure costs were, uh, in the thousands of dollars, easy. And I was still able to kind of retain ownership and still be a part of that. So it worked out really well. And um, now we have currently uh, been given a valuation and, and raised money at a $10 million valuation. The founder of Trip, uh, Travelocity is a board member of the company. And I'm now building my second AI app in my spare time. It's it's a little bit more work. This is a mobile app with a lot more stuff. But who knows, this may, may or may not flop, but it'll be fun. And I, it's not kind of taking away from my... Uh, day-to-day work.
0: Amazing. Nadir, this has been a fascinating conversation. I have one last question for you, I think. I've been always itching to ask. You have an Arabic name, but your yes. accent ha- has nothing to do with, with <laughs> Arabic. <laughs> where, yes. where are you from originally or where are you born and raised?
1: I was born and raised in Mississippi. My dad is Palestinian and my mom is American.
0: Nader, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you very much, everybody else, for listening. And I think we'll catch you next time.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It was a pleasure.